Welcome to Digging In, where we provide a front row seat to politics in New Hampshire. I'm State Representative Anita Burroughs. I'm here to bring you the inside track on the people and politics that are shaping our state. I'm Anita Burroughs, and I'm speaking with David Page, a freshman legislator from Conway, and Errol Warden, who is the project manager for the Coas County Child Care Directors Network. We will be discussing the child care crisis in New Hampshire and the progress that New Hampshire is making to make child care affordable and available to young families. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you, Anita. Thanks for having us. Did I mention that David Page is, is the best legislator in out of coming out of Conway? Did I mention that? He's a he's a he's a newbie and he's just amazing. So we're really pleased to have him in the legislature. My first question is, can you tell us each of you how you became champions for child care availability in New Hampshire? Sure. So um a couple factors um contributed to me being interested in trying to make some progress. Um on childcare issues here in New Hampshire. One is that I'm the child of an early childhood educator. My mother was a preschool teacher. Her mother was a preschool teacher here in the Valley. And my father is an educator. And I'll say, seeing the two of them work their tails off and get different kinds of respect or different levels of respect is something that shaped my attitude toward early childhood, because I saw that my mother came home just as tired as my dad, um, worked just as hard and dealt with all the same kinds of issues. And yet the kinds of salary and benefits that early childhood workers receive, the general sort of level of respect and the way that people treat them as professionals or not is very different. And so that shaped sort of my broader attitude towards early childhood and my interest in the issue. The other thing that really shaped my interest in the issue was that um, I have two kids. They're now elementary school age. They're seven and eight, but they were preschool age when COVID hit. And they were in amazing preschool programs. And it was a shock to see just how stretched that system was. And what I saw was amazing educators who were caring for my kids in the most incredible ways, who were trying to make it work in a system that was just set up to fail. And when COVID hit, it was kind of like the last straw, you know, and it just revealed how we as a state had really been ignoring a crisis for years, which really creative directors had just been band-aiding year after year just to try to pull it together and make it keep working. And so when I was running for the legislature, just trying to start digging in, thinking about what we might do to turn the dial and um, was really excited when I was elected that it was also the year where we formed this House Special Committee on Child Care. It was just sort of kismet. It felt like I was coming in wanting to do work on the specific issue and here it was. So it was just really fortuitous. Thanks, David. And so Errol, can you tell us, uh, how did you get into this, this, this subject? Um, I would say probably from one of the things I always wanted to go into was childcare. And I actually got my um, bachelor's degree in early childhood education. So then I went in and I worked about seven years. And one of the catalysts for really the sole catalyst for me leaving um, that career at that time was that I wanted to have children of my own. 
I got into it because I love kids. I wanted to have my own kids. Um, and I had my first daughter and we were looking at the finances. And one of the things we looked at was the cost of childcare and how much I was actually bringing in in my role as a pre-K teacher. And it ended up being maybe an extra $300 a month after I was working. And that's not taking into account, yeah. of course, gas, a second vehicle, all those things. And so I ended up deciding to stay home with my first. Once I gave her a sibling, it was a very much a mute point to going back into my career um, because it was just not feasible. I would be then pulling for my husband's salary to pay for childcare so that I could go back into my field of expertise. Right. And that's, that seems, seems to be an issue for so many families in New Hampshire. Uh, yeah, you know, I- identical to the situation that that you just described. So um, I think a lot of people in New Hampshire, and I have to say, I'm one of them. Our kids are out of the house. My stepkids came into my life when they were teenagers. So this is a- an issue that I'm unfamiliar with. But I think many people are, know about affordable housing, but they don't know about the daycare crisis. So um, I was wondering if you can tell us how this is impacting young families in New Hampshire. Sure. It's a huge, it's a huge impact on young families and it's a huge impact on attracting young families to the state too. So it impacts both those who are here, but also our ability as a state to be competitive. Um, I can't tell you, you know, in the, in the field hearings that we've been holding as a special committee, how many times I've heard about communities trying to recruit in um, folks for really critical jobs, you know, sheriff's deputies, nurses, all of these positions where we want to bring in workforce and they're coming from elsewhere. What are the first things they look for after they're offered the job? They say, where am I going to live? Mm-hmm. Can't find a house. And where is my kid going to be cared for while I'm at work and they can't find an open spot at a center. So it's a really huge problem. I think Aside from the workforce issues, too, it's, you know, it's an impact on families who, you know, are making the decision, just as Era was talking about, to exit the workforce, right, even if they don't right. want to. And there's a very gendered dimension to that, too, let's be frank, right? I mean, the impact is disproportionately on women in the workforce, which is hugely problematic. Arrow, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that or about sort of the perspective on the impact on kids. Yeah, I think you I think you summed it up well. A lot of the families you see where they're having the conversations where they're putting their kid on wait list between two childcare centers and then choosing where they're going to move their families in regards to that. And so you can kind of that really echoes the impact it has on families. And then of course you have to think the impact it has on children. A lot of these children parents are doing the best they can. They're piecing together care, but sometimes it's two days in childcare, two days at grandma's, one day home. And we all know the routine, the relationships these kids are building are essential, especially in those pivotal first five years where their brain, um, the social emotional, all the things are developing so solidly. So going from place to place and having that discorded sort of education it's obviously going to have an effect. And I think we're seeing it in the school systems. So we, we also must be discouraging families from coming to the Granite State where we desperately need workers. Yes. The family Absolutely. I was talking about where they were between two places, two wait lists. One was in Massachusetts and one was in New Hampshire. And ultimately the Massachusetts one popped first. So 
we are losing people quite steadily. Okay. So we're talking about the impact on families and what, what is the impact on business in, in New Hampshire? I think in 2023, over 15,000 people on average said that they weren't working because they had to care for a child at home. And so I learned that some towns that you, you folks told me, Justice Bartlett, have public pre-K care, but it's not economically feasible for them to do infant and toddler care. So can we talk to this subject and do we need to subsidize infant and toddler care in these communities? Sure. I heard a couple different questions there. I guess I'd start with that 15,000 15, sort of folks who are not working because they're caring for a child. I think first we need to be, we do need to be careful and qualify that by saying some of those people want to be home with their kids. So I think that's an important right. point just to, to put right. on there because not everybody makes wants to make that choice. But a lot of those folks are people who, who would prefer to be working. The other thing I'd note in terms of that impact is that's a number that's larger than our number of folks who are unemployed, right? So when we talk about workforce shortages across our industries, whether you're talking about hospitality, whether you're talking about nursing, all of these different fields, that's huge, right? We're looking at a larger potential pool of workers than the, than the pool of workers of unemployed. So it's a huge part of the problem. It's a huge part of the problem. In terms of public pre-K, that's a complicated question. And I think um, I'm a huge supporter of public pre-K. Let me start by saying that. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good thing, but it doesn't always meet all families' needs. And I think Errol might be able to speak to that better than I can, but I think it's important that we that we see public pre-K as a good, but also not necessarily a complete solution. Errol, did you want, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, a few of the, I think the biggest pieces that come into the conversation around public pre-K is that it can definitely serve a good, but we have to be very mindful of how it's implemented. A lot of pre-K programs, they have it where it's a restricted amount of time. So really it that yeah. in, in turn doesn't necessarily make work a feasible option for those parents. Um, and it also has the financial side effect that the way childcare centers are set up right now is that pre-K subsidizes infant and toddler care because of the ratios that are mandated mm -hmm. and that are safe. Um, and in that regard, the second you are pulling pre-K from childcare centers, it destabilizes them. They no longer can offer those infant and toddler spots and they will have to close their doors. So I think in any conversation we have around pre-K in New Hampshire, there has to be a way to really be pulling in the established centers and making sure they're a strong part of that conversation. So, and what is the ratio for toddlers and babies? Is it one person caretaker for every four children? It is, yes. Yeah, once, yeah. It, once they're, they're under two years of age. And a lot of people, we have shown that a few centers, um, depending on the age of the baby, because you got to think newborn versus six months versus one year, they're at very different stages. Right. So depending on the age of those children, that will also affect the ratio just for quality terms. Um, so if they're a bunch of little babies, that's a little harder to have one to four versus if they're a little bit closer to their toddler phase. A, a concept that might be worth discussing briefly is what we call, what we call mixed delivery. And we've seen some legislation trying to 
promote or, or test this out as a potentially feasible model here in New Hampshire. You know, basically, it's sort of integrating, trying to integrate our existing centers into a public model which has a lot of benefits, right? Because it doesn't destabilize that mm-hmm. infant and toddler care piece that's so important. You can't lose those infant and toddler spots because centers are closing. But there's other advantages too. You know, you bring people into closer alignment with their local public school system, which has all kinds of benefits. Um, so that's a really potentially powerful model for us to be exploring. And I just want to interject here. We have a really good example of what happens with childcare, because we hear little people in the background. So <laughs> I, I, I thought it was, see, I thought it was no, David's kids. It's Errol's kids. Just, just one, the littlest one. Okay. So, you know, that's kind of an example of what happens and, and it's, you know, that's real life. It's, it's, it's all good. So, um, I'm sorry. I blamed your kids, David. <laughs> I let them take the blame. <laughs> okay. So no, we like, we like kids on the podcast. So um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about SB 237? Yeah, I'll kick that off. What happened is it was folded into the budget itself, um, which is good in the terms of that will be, you know, reoccurring things that need to happen. And some of the pieces of that we've already seen come into play as the enrollment versus attendance base. And what that means is that when you have attendance based, when all of those kids were having to stay home for COVID and those things, the either the childcare centers still have to pay their teachers, even if the kids are not, you right. have a lower ratio in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, So they had that financial burden. So either they were taking that on or they were having to keep their business afloat. They have to pass that on to the parents. So then the parents that we know are income eligible for the scholarship are now having to pay out of pocket for the time their kids um, are not within the center. So now that it's enrollment based, that has coverage. So if your kid's homesick, the teachers still have to be in the classroom. Um, the child care center is able to keep that revenue and it's not falling upon them or um, their parents. So parents then uh, in these scenarios might have sent their kids to school sick and gotten other kids sick. They did. Let me clarify. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. And And then then the teacher's sick and then the teacher's out and then you have closed classrooms. It was a snowball effect. I got it. it. Very much so. (laughs) They did two other big pieces of that legislation was they did um, 15 million for child care workforce and that's starting to roll out now in regards to retention and recruitment uh, for centers and they also did a new scholarship eligibility that's going to be quite a bit higher that we're hoping to will be rolled out in the last estimated date was end of February, beginning of March. That's awesome. That's a, awesome coming right up. A huge impact. So we're really hoping to get the word out on that. That's that's fabulous. And David, I know that you're working on childcare legislation now with Senator Becky Whit- Whitley, uh, SB 404, am I correct? That's right. Yep. And uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the bill and, and that its prospect for passage. Sure. I think um, first, first of all, I don't want to suggest it's just me and Senator Whitley. It's um, got a lot of bipartisan support, and there's a lot of really great people on this bill. Senator Bradley is on the bill. Mary Jane Walner, who's 
just a powerhouse in the House side, on the Dem side, is on the bill. And really, this seems like the natural next step after the victory that we had last year, which Errol was just talking about yeah. in SB 237, or that was integrated into HB2, integrated into the budget. I think, first of all, it's really critical to just celebrate what happened last year, because really every year it's been getting worse. And those changes that Errol just talked about are are truly momentous. I mean, they don't solve the problem. <laughs> we still have a long way to go. But you got the ball 2023 rolling. Was, yeah, 2023 was really sort of yeah. the first year where we said, okay, the ship is turning. You know, these are huge changes. And when we talk about sort of the crisis in childcare, we're talking about generally three things I think of. We're talking about access. Are there spots available for the people who need them? We're talking about affordability. If those spots are available, can people take them because it makes sense with their with their family budget, right? Or does it, as yeah. happened to Errol, you know, so they, they do the math and they say, it doesn't even make sense for me to be returning to work. And then the sustainability piece, the sustainability of the centers. Can we keep and retain workforce to keep classrooms open? And all these three things are linked. And that legislation that we passed as part of the budget last year addresses all three of those things in really important ways because we're increasing the eligibility, et cetera. So what this year's legislation would do, should it pass, is it would ensure that childcare workers are eligible for that scholarship program, right? So that we are able to keep those people in classrooms so that we can keep classrooms open mm-hmm. and that those spots stay available. It's really the, for me, it's a no-brainer. It's an investment in the workforce behind the workforce, as we like to say um, in early childhood. And it will make a huge difference for, for sustainability. So I'm I'm really hopeful we'll get that passed. We've got some good support behind it. Well, well you've got two powerhouses behind you with Jeb Bradley and Mary Jane Walner. So, um, and sure. you you are I'm, a powerhouse in the in the in the state house as well. I'm a I'm a, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a I'm a budding powerhouse. I'm a little. Uh, you are you are already David's David's in his first term. He's already a powerhouse. So um, anyway, no, that's that's really great news, and I, I think that teachers in general and childcare workers have been traditionally really undervalued. You know, I mean, what's more important than, than getting our kids educated, you know? So Absolutely. this is great because I think it recognizes the importance. And I think in early childhood, um, it's almost amplified. I mean, I think that's true across education. But mm-hmm. I think folks, you know, don't even necessarily think of early childhood educators as educators. And of course, they yes. are. Yes. You no, know? they're trained professionals who give countless hours and it's not like there's no skills required. They have huge knowledge of child, or, you know, early childhood development. Um, and these are the people we want with our kids, taking care of our kids, right? And we have to make sure they're cared for. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, what, other, what are some other things, uh, important things going on? Uh, well, we've got some other legislation popping. Um, I don't know if, Errol, do you want to talk? I, I can take this or you can take this, but there's some interesting projects that... Um, are happening with the ARPA discretionary money, the American Rescue Plan Act money, or the COVID relief money. Um, so a good chunk of that change has gone into some really interesting contracts. And Arrow, I don't know if you want to cover some of those, and then I can talk about the zoning legislation. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Um, they went into a few different criteria, uh, some around the business of childcare itself, some around our quality system, 
of course, worker retention and recruitment processes. Family child care has been quite a conversation piece in regards to family at home child care, licensed child care or license exempt child care. And another big piece that it has gone out for is and is under contract is around the family friendly business and workplace in regards to thinking of the general workforce itself and what is something that they need and that is family friendly policies and that is childcare. And some of those are benefits that people are seeking and businesses are starting to realize, hey, if I offer family friendly policies and I offer childcare benefits or even I have links to available childcare, the amount of people that are interested in now taking a position and having longevity within my business rises substantially. And so making sure the businesses are coming to the table because they're feeling it and they're reaching out and asking, what can we do? We need our employees. That's, that's actually a great, a, great, a great thought. And I think that's happening more with affordable housing and more companies are actually thinking about buying properties to house uh, their employees. So they go hand in hand. So, um, you know, they, have, they certainly have skin in the game. So, um, David, can you tell us a little bit about uh, a zoning bill for family child care, which is HB 1567? Yeah, sure. So um, the way I think of this bill and, and uh, is as the, the ball bearings. <laughs> this is sort of a the kind of it's not a very exciting bill, but it's going to make things work better. So Errol was just talking about some of that ARPA-D money that's gone into a contract to try to stimulate the creation of more family child care. So that's in-home care. That's really important because it's one of the quickest levers we can pull to increase capacity is creating more small in-home cares. Mm -hmm. But the problem that we're going to run into as we try to get that work done is that a lot of municipalities have put some pretty onerous restrictions on the creation of family child care, things that have nothing to do with health and safety. So something very important to to make clear is that the licensing requirements are already quite strict in terms of the health and safety considerations, right? So we're not talking about, about anything that jeopardizes children's health and safety when we're talking about this legislation. Kinds of restrictions or barriers that municipalities have put into place are things like you need to have so many parking spots, which if you've only got you know six kids and seven kids in your care in your home, um, and they're coming and going at different times, is really onerous and not necessary. Another one we see in a lot of municipalities is saying, "Great, you can have a family childcare, but you can't have an employee who lives outside the home." Well, if you want to have twelve kids in care, like you can't make ratio, right? So these are unnecessary restrictions that are going to impede us from making some really important progress that will help us build capacity so that we can have more slots open for folks. It's also really important with family childcare is they often tend to also have more flexible hours, right? Um, So, you know, for example, my kids were in center-based care, but they often would be in a family childcare for um, a teacher workshop day, sometimes after school. So, you know, it's as part of the sort of early childhood ecosystem, it's important in many ways. And we have to help help people be who want to, to be able to set up these family cares. 
The uh, David, question I want to ask you about this bill is because I've been in, this is my third term and I know exactly what the first question is going to be if this comes to commerce or, or whether it goes to municipal is they're going to ask, is this, is this, is this bill, the H, HB 1567 going to infringe upon uh, town rights, local rights? In my opinion, um, Anita, it does not in that it actually makes clear the spirit of the existing law. If you read the existing law, it basically says that we shouldn't be impeding these these family care, these family and group family care um, classes of child care. But that law doesn't have teeth currently. The other thing to keep in mind is that the size of these daycares is such that you might have a neighbor who has that many kids, you know, you know, you might, it might not be even daycare, you know, you might have a neighbor with six kids, right? So it's not, I, I understand how folks could make that local control argument, but I think the reality of it is it's not really different in the impact on a neighborhood than a residential use, right? Um, it's not qualitatively different. Well, I will just predict that the uh, town people will be there in force to talk about the bill. But, you know, I'm well, I'm, I'll, I'm, I'll say I believe that the municipal association is neutral on the bill. OK, um, that's good. I also um, it is bipartisan. It has the support of our chair, Ross Berry, who is the chair of the special committee on child care. Um, so I have I have hopes for it. Good. That's great. And if I'm on, if it comes to commerce, you know, I'll be backing you. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to wrap up our conversation. I just, a little anecdote, um, Errol, I saw the video that you posted about testifying in Concord for the first time. And you can, you know, you came all the way down from, uh, you, you live way up North near Colebrook, um, two and a half, over two and a half hours. You said uh, that you needed six minutes for your time and you were cut to two minutes, which is so frustrating because, you know, you're somebody who, has a lot of knowledge to share. So um, I'm glad they gave you the two minutes. I'm honestly okay with it. It cut me to two minutes <laughs> yeah. because the reason was there was so many people that day testifying in support of SB 237. I won't say it wasn't nerve wracking in that regard, um, but I was given really good advice as I headed in there. And that is if you have to cut anything, Leave the stories. I, I totally stories. agree with you. Yeah. You know, I, I've said, I think I said this to you um, as a legislator, the thing that sways me more than anything else is when an individual comes in and tells, tells a very riveting personal story. I mean, and it gets you emotionally and you see why we need to pass a bill. So um, I applaud you for that. And, and the other thing, and David knows in the legislature, we have a number of moms who have brought in their babies you know, they bring them to the legislature and we always love having babies in the legislature and they get passed from person to person to person. Um, when somebody gets tired of holding the baby or mom has to step out for a minute, they get passed around, but we love having them. But that I, I think, um, really also shows, um, the problem that we have. It sounds like you guys are, are optimistic about childcare in New Hampshire over the next five years. Is that right? Yes. I'm hugely optimistic. I think we have a long way to go, but what keeps me optimistic is that there is a bipartisan understanding of where the problems are and a determination to get some things done. So we are nowhere near the end of the road. Right. Um, but I feel like we will continue to make steady progress, which, um, which gives me tremendous hope. 
I just want to say, David, when you're governor, I'm sh- I have no doubt that that this will this will reach new heights. So we're we're looking forward to that day. So, uh, Era, what were you going to say? Oh, I second that entirely. That'll be wonderful. I think David's blushing for those of you who are listening. Yeah. <laughs> no, I completely agree. I think we've made some of those good, solid steps forward. And we just have to keep having these conversations and moving those steps forward. And I think a really unique piece of New Hampshire is the accessibility that you have to your legislature and to your state and government representatives and to utilize that. Reach out to them, have coffee with them, send them emails, letters, um, and have those conversations and have your voice heard. And it's such an accessible system in New Hampshire, where one of my experiences was I went online and I looked up somebody who was one of the council members in our region. And I was like, oh, I know that guy. I buy my potatoes from him at the farmer's market. My kids played with the puppies he was selling. So it'll it'll amaze you how close those people really are in our communities. Right. And I will tell you, I'm sure David's experience that I have changed my mind on bills after listening to constituents, I, you know, try to put the community first. So it is a fact of, I mean, some, some representatives are more accessible than others. If somebody, you reached out to one person and you don't get much of a response, go to somebody else in your county or nearby. But if you call David, he will always, always respond to you. Um, I can assure <laughs> you of that. So anyway, I want to thank both of you for coming to Digging In. Um, it was a good conversation and thanks for being here. Thank you, Anita. Thank you so much for having us. Digging In is proud to announce that this week's New Hampshire Putts of the Week Award goes to former Executive Counselor Andrew Volinsky for his effort to attack Israel by means of the New Hampshire primary. He initiated a campaign to have Granite State Dems write in ceasefire instead of President Joe Biden's name on the primary ballot, which was held on January 23rd. It's hard to know where to start voicing how wholly inappropriate these actions taken by Volinsky were. Recent evidence has revealed that Hamas had constructed a much more extensive tunnel system beneath Gaza from which to launch their campaign of terror against the citizens of Israel than the Israeli intelligence estimated spanning hundreds of miles. As Israel had always asserted, these tunnels were constructed under hospitals and schools as a means of creating human shields. Until Israel destroys these tunnels and eradicates Hamas, the people of Israel will never be secure. I do not believe that there is anyone with a beating heart who does not want to protect the innocent victims of Gaza. It is heartbreaking to see what is happening to an entire population, 47% of whom are children. However, Hijacking the ballot to direct foreign policy is a dangerous, inappropriate, and slippery slope. I stand with the New Hampshire House USA-Israel Relations Caucus in condemning this action by Andrew Valinsky and hereby name him as the New Hampshire Putts of the Week. Thank you for listening to Digging In. I want to thank State Representative David Page and Errol Warden of the COAS Coalition for Young Children and Families for talking about child care. For my next episode, I'm very excited to be speaking with Quinn Mitchell, a 15-year-old journalist from New Hampshire who Chris Christie described as the most famous political team in the country. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Digging In wherever you get your podcasts. I would also appreciate your spreading the word about this podcast to your friends and on social media. 